Good morning, church. Let's begin by going to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we ask for your Holy Spirit to quiet our hearts and our minds, that we might hear your voice, to enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we might see your face, that we might gaze upon your holiness and understand what it is that you have for us as your people. Would you do a work in our hearts this morning, Lord God, as we come near your holy word? In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, it's a joy to take us into week three of the book of Malachi, a book that bears the, the name, My Messenger, a message from God to his covenant-breaking people. We've established that as we've, we've begin to, to look at this book, we understand that it's a question of, of allegations from God to his people, and God is, as a covenant-keeping God, bringing to view whereas people have been unfaithful. We saw in our, our first week the way in which God patiently accepted a question from his people. His people asked him, do, do you love us? And God graciously answered, and he said, yes, I love you. And he demonstrated this because he brought them out of captivity. He brought them out of captivity and he kept his promises to them. Not only that, but he answered their prayers as his people prayed to him in accordance with his own will. We also saw that God faithfully and sovereignly elected his people. It was because of nothing that they did and everything because of what he willed. We also saw that God chooses and uses his people as sinners for his purposes, for the purposes of making his name known. It's with this in view that God loves his people that we continue to move into God's examination of the hearts of his people. God's bringing into mind yet again his covenants. To refresh ourselves on where we've been and to prepare our hearts for all that God has to, to show us this morning, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to begin at verse 14 of chapter 1. And we'll move through the ninth verse of Malachi chapter 2. This is the word of God. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen... If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my commandment with Levi may stand." says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. 
True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I will make you despised and abased before all people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and perfect word. You may be seated. For those of you note takers, I would encourage you to use the bulletin. The bulletin last week had three different headings. And I'm going to invite you to reuse that same format that we used last week because it will help us understand and interpret this very challenging, timely, and beautiful text. The first heading is that of covenant roles. What are the roles that we see defined in this passage? And then midway down your paper, you might choose to write in covenant responsibilities. What is it that God is bringing to mind that his people ought to have been doing? And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at the covenant kept. So covenant roles, covenant responsibilities, and covenant kept. We'll also remember that as we move through these different allegations that God brings against his people, we have the three eyes there, right? We have the first one, which is they're showing gratitude. They're not grateful what God has done for them, bringing them out of captivity and restoring them. And secondly, where we find ourselves again today is the sin of irreverence, a lack of fear for a holy God. And the third eye, which we'll also get a glimpse of today, is that of incapability. God's people, in and of themselves, incapable. So let's begin by looking at the, the covenant roles that we see in this passage. With intentionality, we began the reading back in chapter 1, verse 14. If you look at the bottom half of this first verse, the first role that we should see in this text, and the most important one, is this. God says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. So if you get a role and you understand who's being discussed in this passage, understand first and foremost that this is about God, the great king, the Lord of hosts. God in Christ is the one who inspired this word. It's him that's speaking. And it's also about him. So before we go looking for where, where do we fit into this picture, let's remember first and foremost that this is about the role of our God, the covenant-keeping God. Then as we move into the, the first verse of chapter 2, we have another role in view. It says, And now, O priests, this is for you. Now we saw last week that there were a couple of different roles that would help us understand the rightful, reverent honor that is owed to our God. We saw that he is father and we're his children. We saw that he is master and we're his slave. And we saw that he is God, holy God, and we are his priests. And so here it is again, the role that we want to see clearly in view this week is that of priest. Now before you check out and think, well, what does a priest have to do with me? Remember what we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2. You, those of you in Christ, are a royal priesthood. So if you're here today and you think, I don't know of any priests, and our church doesn't have priests, just remember that as we apply this text, as we move through this today, we are 
priests of God because of Christ Jesus. So this message is for, therefore, us as we understand our relationship with our holy God. Now, moving into examining that role of priest, there's a couple of things that I, I want us to understand before we move into this text, okay? So where Malachi sits is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It stands right before 400 years of divine silence. That means that from this vantage point, we have to look back in order to understand where God and his grace is moving us through redemptive history, and it points to Christ. So we're going to rewind, and then we're going to jump ahead, always with Christ Jesus in mind. So when we understand priests, there's a name of a particular priest, or so it would seem, in this text. As we move through chapter 2, and we read those first verses, the name Levi shows up twice. So when God is wanting us to understand our role as priests, he often will use a particular person as a type to explain what it is that we need to know about being priests. God uses the name Levi. As we come to understand Levi, we need to understand that God is specifically pointing to a priest named Aaron. So when you see Levi, I want you to understand that what God is talking about and who he's pointing to is the specific priest Aaron. How do we get there? Let's rewind a second. First of all, we learned as we started the book of Malachi that Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So God in his design, divine sovereignty took the secondborn, chosen yet still in the womb, Jacob. Jacob meets his lovely lady, Leah, if you don't know that story. It was a fairly long process for him. The third child that Jacob and Leah would have was a man named Levi. Levi has his kids. One of his sons has other sons. These sons include Moses and Aaron, right? Isn't that remarkable? When we think about Levites, actually both Moses and Aaron were of the line of Levi. But God in his grace picked Aaron to fulfill a special role. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 17. We're going to do a skim read together of Numbers 17 and Numbers 18. We're not going to read it all. Reading from the Pentateuch is hard, and we're not trying to earn a scholar's certificate in Old Testament trivia today. But I do want you to understand that our covenant-keeping God picks Aaron, and he picks Aaron just like he picks all the rest of us, not on our merits. Amen? So we know that Jacob, the deceiver, the second-born, was picked sovereignly by God in his mother's womb. Of Jacob's line, we get... Levi's grandsons, one of them was Moses. He was given a job and he said, I can't, 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 can't talk well. I stutter and my lips are uncircumcised lips. Could you please send somebody else with me? God says, take Aaron. And then we get to chapter 17 of Numbers and we have this really weird scenario here where the Lord speaks to Moses in verse 1. And he says, Speak to the house of Israel, the people of Israel, and get staffs, one for each father's house, from all of their chiefs, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. Write each man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there should be one staff for the head of each father's house. And as this chapter unfolds, you have this weird story where God tells Moses to round up everybody's staff, a symbol of their leadership, to carve their names on them. And then as the chapter unfolds, they're told to take them in to the tent of meeting and leave them there. 
okay? This sounds a, a bit like a supernatural lottery of sorts, right? But look what, look what happens. Verse 4 of number 17. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony, where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of all the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to all the people and all their chiefs and gave them staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the house of testimony, in the tent of testimony. And on the next day, Moses went into the tent of testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced almonds, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel. And they looked, and each man took a staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony, to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that they may make an end of all their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses... As the Lord commanded, so he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we to perish? Isn't this an incredible account? So God picks Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff miraculously sprouts forth buds, and everyone in the whole nation of Israel is clear that God has chosen this man. Imperfect to fulfill a specific role. What's that role? Well, chapter 18, skim reading this, will tell us. Look at verse 1. So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house and you, with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And if you skip down with me to verse 7, it says, And you and your sons and with you shall guard the priesthood for all that concerns the altar and within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. This is a, a special role that Aaron and his descendants are being given. So make sure we get this in view. When Scripture talks about Levi, we're talking about Aaron. When we talk about Aaron, was there anything particularly special about him? No. God selected his staff and gave him this role, and he did so in a visible and evident way. His gift was the sacred responsibility of administering all that was the temple. So, we understand, back to the, our primary text in Malachi chapter 2, that this covenant was one that the people of Israel have known about for quite some time. In fact, the staff of Aaron was one of the things placed in the Ark of the Covenant. So as they carried around the Ark of the Covenant, not only did it have the, the tablets that God gave the law to Moses, but it also had Aaron's very flowery staff, right? With the almond blossoms, it was a reminder to them of what his job was. And now, Malachi chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. Verse 2 says, if you will not listen, and if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. So as we, we understand, drawing near to this text, that we're talking about covenant roles and covenant responsibilities, all of that is to lay out a covenant relationship. The relationship between God and his people. God gave 
Aaron and the priests to his people to represent the people to their God and God to their people. That was a a special covenant relationship and there's a way in which God shows his covenant relationship. And that's through blessings. We talk about blessings a lot in, in our Christian circles, don't we? We talk about those things that God has given us as gifts to point us to our relationship with him. Think for a moment, if you would, what are some of those things that you would identify as a blessing in your life? Your family? Your job? Your finances? Your health? All those things are very precious to us, aren't they? And, and what is our response when God takes those things away from us? Fear. Anger. Disillusionment. But get this, all of those blessings are supposed to point us back to the relationship with God itself. Sometimes when he talks about taking away our blessings, that hits a nerve a bit more than him saying he's going to take away the relationship with him. Listen to what D.A. Carson says when he describes blessings. He says, However, the ultimate blessing is not the material benefits, but the relationship itself. To be part of God's covenant people, to to belong to God in this way, is to be blessed. The greatest blessing of being one of God's people is to have a relationship with him. Conversely, Carson speaks of curses. He says, in a similar way, to be out of relationship with God is to be cursed. So when we look at that verse and we say, listen, God says to his people, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them. Those words should have struck horror in the hearts of the priest. But let's get this in context yet again. For 21st century parents, there is a really great way of chastising and correcting our young people. That is, to take away their cell phone, right? To take away their cell phone. That cell phone, they're on the family plan, right? It's a tool to to communicate within the family. It's a way in which they do life. It is arguably a blessing that they can't do without. In this passage, what we see here is that they just got their blessing handed back to them, right? And God says, don't you remember? I'm going to take this blessing back from you, right? The grounded kids, your parents just gave your phone back to you the next day, get it back, right? That's where the people and the priests of Israel are right now. They just got their blessing of the land back. Remember that? If you obey my commandments, it will go well for you and you will live long in the land. Did they do that? Nope. They got carted off to Babylon, But God in his grace lets them come back. Another blessing is to to go and stand in the temple. The temple had been leveled, destroyed. God in his grace allows Ezra and Nehemiah and the people of Israel to build it up again. So they just got their blessings back. And here they are at the point of having it rescinded yet again as God would chastise them. 
But make no mistake about it, both the blessing and the curse have the same purpose, and that is to drive us back into right relationship with God. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. What's the fault that God finds with his people there? They don't lay it to heart to honor him. They obey, but begrudgingly. They drag their feet and they bring their second best sacrifices. Remember what we saw? They're lame sacrifices, one leg shorter than the other. It's blind. These are imperfect sacrifices, which takes us to verse 3. Some of you who did your homework well in advance have had more than a few head scratchings or chuckles trying to understand what God's word is trying to tell us here. Look at verse 3. God says to the priests, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. The first time I preached through this text was in Spanish, and my, my son asked me, what does this word mean in Spanish? And I had to try to translate what dung ought to be, and if you're not careful, you can end up with a word that's more than slightly distasteful to use in God's house. So it's pretty important to understand that it's God that's using this word, and when he, means, when he means to use that word, he means to use it in the most vile and offensive way. He's talking about people who bring their sacrifices before the Lord. You're supposed to take the, the best sacrifice and the best cuts of meat from that sacrifice, and you're supposed to burn it on the altar. For those of you who like to grill meat, you know that that's a pleasing smell. It's a beautiful smell. But there were specific instructions throughout the law of what was supposed to be done with the rest of the meat, the rest of the flesh, the hair, the innards. Exodus chapter 29, verse 14, gives the specific instruction. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside of the camp. It is a sin offering. And there's even more important instructions that the guy that gets that job of burning the innards, complete with the last meals that that sacrifice ate, was supposed to ditch his clothes when he's done with it. They were a stench. They were an offense. So the heart of the priest would be to take a sacrifice in before the Lord and know that the Lord accepts it. But the Lord's not accepting their sacrifice. He's taking the, the ugly part, the part with excrement in it. Do you picture that? And he wipes it on the faces of the priests. And if you move through the rest of this chapter, the, the verses that we're looking at this morning, there's specific human anatomy in view. Okay, if you skim read it with me, we've got the dung is being spread on their what? Their faces. And we see mentioned there the, the lips and the mouth. I don't know if any of the rest of you had the experience of having your mouths washed out with soap as children. I did. I learned to appreciate many flavors of liquid and bar soap. But in this particular case, what God is washing his, his priest's mouth out with is not clean. It's filthy. It's as offensive to them as their sacrifices to him. And all of this points us to a covenant-keeping God. Think about Isaiah chapter 6 for just a minute. We've got the prophet Isaiah. And God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips living in the midst of unclean people. And that's the kind of unclean and the unkind of filthy that Isaiah was talking about. A sinful heart with sinful lips. 
And as we know in that vision, the angel of the Lord approached Isaiah with a hot coal and seared his lips and cleansed his lips and made Isaiah acceptable. So when we come to this verse and we understand about the, the dung of these offerings, we need to understand that what's being put in view here is how offensive the sin of God's people is to God. Dung on their faces. Worse than that, the last part of that verse says, spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. It's unclean. It had to go outside of this tent of meeting. It had to go outside of the, the, the uh, community of the Israelites out in the desert. And in temple days, it had to go outside the city walls. This is unclean. This is not appropriate in the presence of a holy God. Do we get the picture? So we continue and we, we move ahead in this and we see in verse four, God says, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of the hosts. Verse five, my covenant with Levi, my covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 10. Isn't it fun to do Old Testament law together? There's a lot of really interesting stuff in here. There's a lot of things in here that help us understand exactly what God wants us to know about him and about ourselves. So we know, as we move into this next section of our notes here, covenant responsibilities. What are the responsibilities? What are the things that God wants his people to do? And by way of example, we have yet again Aaron, or Levi, being given a very painful learning lesson. Leviticus chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord, and it consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. We're going to keep reading, but let me stop there for just a minute. So we saw back in Numbers that there was a special covenant. Aaron and his sons get this job of bearing the iniquity of the people and taking temple care, tabernacle care, very seriously. And so that we can be clear that God wasn't messing around, Aaron's sons go in and they offer unauthorized fire, and the fire of God consumes them. So when we read and we see that my covenant with Aaron was one of life and peace and one of fear, and he stood in awe of my name, don't you think Aaron got that pretty clearly? Like, his sons were... were carbonized. They didn't take seriously the instructions of their holy God. And if you continue reading and you go through the next couple of verses, Moses and Aaron were told, you keep doing what you're doing. Don't cry about the boys. Don't take them out. Send for the uncles. The uncles can carry them outside, but you keep doing what you're doing so that everyone will understand. Look at this together in verse 8. 
And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or drink, you and your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So the first point that I want us to understand as we look at this passage, first note, we now really are clear on what that covenant of fear is all about, right? But moreover, God uses this as an important lesson for what his priest is supposed to do. His priest is supposed to make the distinction between what is holy and what is common, between what is sacred and what is profane. So the first thing that a a priest ought to do is make that distinction, I find it amazing how God orchestrates what happens at our church on a Sunday morning. The way that without coordinating, the brother that leads adult Sunday school and the brother that leads order of worship and the brothers that are praying throughout the week can arrive at some of the same themes from God's word. Again, I wish we could say we we spend every waking minute together and we coordinate and we go through these details, but that wouldn't be true. But guess what? God's Holy Spirit dwells in each of us. And God's Holy Spirit points us to where we need to be in his text. One of the incredible things that we saw in adult Sunday school this morning is that God sanctifies us. He does it once and for all, and he does it progressively, and he'll do it ultimately when we're glorified. But you know, as I looked at that for the last two weeks, I've been contemplating the fact that God tells us that his priests, his people, are supposed to sanctify him. Wait a minute, that sounds really scary. That sounds heretical, right? God can never be more holy. And there is nothing holy in us whatsoever. So what does that mean? But that's what God's word says. Look at verse 4. Sorry, verse 3 of Leviticus chapter 10. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people... I will be glorified. A text we looked at a couple of weeks ago, last week actually, Leviticus chapter 22. If you flip just a few pages over there, Leviticus chapter 22, verse 32 says, And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So he sanctifies us, but it also says that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. The lips of God's people are to sanctify him. That means to set him apart. We do not contribute to his holiness. But we do speak of him in a way that lets others in the world around us know that we regard him as holy. Do your lips separate what is profane from what is holy? When people hear you talking, do they see more passion and enthusiasm about you talking about your favorite sports team, your favorite hobby, your favorite place to shop? Or do they hear your lips giving praise to that which is holy, that which is unique and set apart in your life? The lips of the priest should separate what is holy and what is profane. Moving on from there, going back to our key text this morning, Malachi chapter 2. we move to the the second point of instruction that we see, covenant responsibilities in verse 6. True instruction 
was found in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. True instruction is what should be found on the lips of God's people, God's priests. Right instruction. One of the things that I've gained most from this theology of grief study is the importance of being able to deliver timely words to people when they need them. When people in your workplaces come to seek you out for guidance, when people in your schools come to seek you out for guidance, are they doing it because you have something great to offer them or are they doing it because they know you're one of God's people? And did they know that the instruction that you're going to get is going to be vetted and coming from God's word? Look, if the instruction that we give people isn't through the lens of scripture, we're prone to say some pretty dumb stuff. We can say some insensitive things to someone in grief. We can provide advice to someone facing a very heavy situation that would steer them down a wrong path. For that reason, one of God's responsibilities for his people is that true instruction should be found in our mouth. No wrong found on our lips. That verse continues on and it says, He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. That'll be our our third point as we move through these covenant responsibilities. So the, the priest with his lips should differentiate between the holy and the profane, should offer true instruction, and here... This is really important. He turned many from iniquity. Do your lips turn many from iniquity? What's another way of saying turn from our iniquity? Repent. Repent, right? Throughout all of scripture, the message is there. Repent, turn it around. Turn to God. Step away from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. If the priest isn't continually offering a message of repentance, you ought to stop talking. If the message of repentance isn't key in what God's people do, stop talking, right? All along, we see that that God's people are supposed to live differently than everybody else, which means our message needs to be, turn to, to our God. Turn to our Savior who is abundant in his forgiveness, Step away from what you're doing. That path leads to destruction. Throughout scripture, we find, stand by the ancient path. We see Christ come and offer the clear message of the narrow gate of repentance. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Verse 7 says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The lips of the priest should guard knowledge. People should seek instruction from his mouth and and look at the last part of that verse for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. Imagine the weight in that sentence. What does that mean? Speaking on behalf of God. Paul uses similar terminology in the New Testament, does he not? He says, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ. That's a heavy responsibility, church. That role of an ambassador is to take unadulterated the terms of surrender of a holy, righteous king. These are your terms of surrender. Turn to Christ. Christ. 
Repent and believe. Leave your sin behind and turn to him. These aren't my words. These are God's words. These words might offend, but the words will also save. And only his words offer eternal life. So don't apologize when you're delivering God's word. Now, I wouldn't encourage you to, to step to someone at work and say, this is a messenger. I'm a messenger of the Lord of hosts. This message is for you, okay? But in your heart, you ought to know that. Anything that comes out of your mouth, you are accountable for. You are a priest unto your God. And the message of salvation that he has entrusted to you, that gospel, it's yours to share. When you're speaking, you're not speaking on your own behalf. You're speaking on behalf of your God. What an incredible weight and responsibility, is it not? The lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. Verse eight, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Here you have sort of the, the converse to this. This is the negative. This is what the priests are doing wrong. Right? You're bookmarks that you have remind us of what the accusation is of God against his people. It says, Malachi exposes the offenses and rebukes the priests for violating the Lord's covenant with Levi. What are they doing? They're not offering true instruction. They're not offering a message of repentance. They're pandering to what's popular. They're saying what's convenient to be said. And in doing so, they've caused many to stumble. Said, you know what? You don't have to bring your best sheep or bull. Just whatever you got is good. You don't have to leave all your sin behind. You can kind of keep these certain sins. This list of sins is different than the others. So you can hang on to that one, no problem. God's good with that. And what happens when the lips of a priest speak words like that? The people end up in captivity. The people end up under God's divine chastisement because they've sinned. And we, mo we know from throughout Scripture that, that those who are given the responsibility of teaching are held to a different standard. We all, as ministers of the gospel, as priests unto our God, are accountable for the words that we give. Do our words bring life? Or do they cause many to stumble? Verse 9 takes us to the, the next thing that the lips of a priest ought to, must do. It says, And I will make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Looked at several different translations of how this comes out, and we know the word partiality, right? Partiality and judgments, favoritism towards one person or the other. But in this particular context, we're looking at partiality in their instruction. They're picking the parts of the law they want to choose for their own convenience, for their own benefit, for their own gain, but not in a way that shows fear and honor for a holy God. That's why we have to preach the whole thing. Cover to cover, we don't apologize for numbers. We don't apologize for Leviticus. We don't shy away from teaching difficult passages about dung on our faces. It's all God's word and it all has to be taught in order for it to point our wicked hearts to our gracious Savior. 
So if you're following along, I'm just going to recap for you before we, we go into the next section, which is looking at the covenant keeper. The lips of a priest make distinctions between the sacred and the profane. The lips of the priest, the lips of God's people, turn many from iniquity. The lips of God's people provide instruction as though they're messengers of the Most High. The lips of God's people provide impartial instruction in the full counsel of God. And I want to show a passage to you, if you would, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. A familiar text, but in light of what we just saw as these responsibilities of a new covenant priest, look how Paul addresses his young elder friend, young Timothy. And, and we see that these same phrases come to life, jump out of the page at us as we see Paul explaining to Timothy what his job is. We begin at verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's foundation, firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Verse 20. Now in the great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they bring, breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you see all of those things that a priest is supposed to do in that passage? If you missed it, you can take it home as homework and read it again. Where do we see Paul telling Timothy about distinguishing between the holy and the profane. And where did we see Paul talking about Timothy and turning people away from their iniquity towards repentance? Where do we see Paul telling Timothy to teach the whole counsel of God? Those are instructions for New Testament priests. But as we move through our, our outline, the third part, portion, and, and perhaps the most, actually, no question about it, the most important portion of this message is understanding that all of the covenant-keeping people, all of the people that God used and selected to, to be types and, and heads and explain to us the covenants, were not picked because of their own merits. And not only that, but they failed. They failed to, to keep covenant. When we look at this call to be a priest, Aaron and his descendants blew it. No one keeps covenant. 
except God. I love how we read that passage in Ezekiel this morning. We saw that God says, I will, and he has. He says, I will, and he's going to keep fulfilling his faithful promises. But his people, we fail. We fall short, and because of that, we need him to remind us that he is faithful to hold up his end of the bargain. And he's done that through Jesus. If you look at this section of scripture that we've looked at, verses one through nine of Malachi chapter two, you will see that the name of Jesus Christ is not in this passage. If we look for it, we have to rightly understand and use scripture to interpret scripture to see Christ. He's the author of this. He's the subject of this. And in fact, many false religions have come to this text and they focused on the wrong thing. They focused on Aaron and they focused on Levi and they've, they've looked at all the wrong things, not instead looking at the covenant keeper, Christ himself. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 33. The passage that Brother Chris read this morning in Hebrews chapter 8 was a, a quote from Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. And, and here in, in chapter 33, the prophet Jeremiah continues to explain to us the new covenant, the covenant that would be given by God and kept by God for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Let's look at a couple of aspects of this promise as we seek to understand Malachi chapter 2. Beginning at verse 14 of Jeremiah 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Keep that line in mind. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to offer grain offerings, and to make sacrifices. Verse 19, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David my servant may be broken." so that he shall not have a son to reign on the throne and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be, cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Look at those promises. Look at the certainty that God delivers those promises. That there's always going to be daytime. There's always going to be nighttime. As long as there's daytime and nighttime, sure as that happens... My promises are true. What are the promises? The promises of covenant. My covenant with David, I'm always going to have one on the throne. Right? That's what the people of Israel hope for and hope for and hope for and we're disappointed until we come to understand Matthew chapter 1 where the, the descendant of David, the one who sits on the throne, is the one who declares in Malachi 1.14, I am a great king. That great king is Jesus Christ. The fulfillment is Jesus Christ. And the other part of this here says that there's always going to be a Levitical priest. Look at Jeremiah 33, 18. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings. 
Okay? This one gets confused in the minds of a lot of people. That false religion that I was just mentioning to you, they're launching websites and collecting DNA information so that they can understand who's of the tribe of Levi. Because they believe that in order for God to finish his plan, they have to help God out and find a Levitical priest to lead their church. Folks, right here is Jesus, the great high priest who offered a sacrifice once and for all. And what does Hebrews 1 tell us? He's seated at the right hand of God Almighty. The sacrifice is done. We're not looking for another Levitical priest. He's come and he's done it for us. And not only that, but he as our great high priest has invited us to be priests as well. Look at verse 22 of Jeremiah 33. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. You all are Levitical priests. You get that? Even though we don't have his genes, we're all Levites. That was your pun for the day. We're priests <laughs> because God has made us his priest. That's what he's done. That's his promise. Okay, so get this. Jeremiah is promising that David will always have one on the throne. The Levites will always have a priest. And that's what the people of Israel had hoped for. Then all hope is lost. They're carted off into captivity. The temple is raised. And then God in his grace brings people back out of captivity. And if you recall... I mentioned to you that there's five other minor prophets that were all kind of penned at the same time as the, the book of Malachi, and one of those is Zechariah. Take a quick stop in Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah chapter 3, we have a high priest. Zechariah has a vision of this high priest. His name is Joshua, or maybe Jeshua. He is a descendant of Levite. Of Levi, and, and the people thought maybe that things had turned the corner. They're back in the land, they're back in the temple, and they've got a priest. And, and look at God's word, how incredible this is. As they have all these hopes pinned on this guy, look what God says. Verse 1 of Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Let's stop there for just a minute. We've had a high priest and his garments are filthy and you can bet the stuff that's on his garments is the same stuff that God put on the faces of those unfaithful priests. This is stench. Satan accuses him and says, this one's covered in sin. This is your high priest, Israel. This is the best you have. It's filthy. And what does God do? God does what he's, what he's been doing and what he's been promising since the beginning of scripture to its very last page. He's cleansing making us new. God says through his angel, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure garments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothe him with garments. 
And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will walk in my ways and keep my charge, and then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. And behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. You see that? God's faithful promise. Does he keep all of them? Amen. He promises that surely as he will wash away the iniquity of Joshua in this vision and give him new clothes, he's also going to send one, the branch. The same word that God promises through his prophet Jeremiah. The branch is coming. Jesus is coming. The Christ is coming. And in a single day, in a single act of sacrifice, remove all of the iniquity from the land. Praise God. He has done that. He has done that. Matthew chapter 23 we see Jesus speaking to those who were supposed to be giving true instruction and give the whole counsel of God and they did none of those things. And what does Jesus call those guys? He says, you're blind guides. But look what he tells his disciples in verse 10. This is the fulfillment of everything that was pointed to in in the law and the prophets and in Jeremiah and Zechariah. This is what Jesus says. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. One instructor. He did all of those things perfectly. He distinguished between the sacred and the holy. He turned us from iniquity. He has given us instruction as the messenger of the Lord of hosts, being himself the Lord of hosts incarnate. He has given us the whole counsel of God because he is the whole counsel of God. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with understanding that God, through Christ, Fulfill all of his promises. What's left for us to do, but to repent and to use our lips to do just that we've been told to do. I want to end with this, a familiar psalm. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 51. What a beautiful way to understand Malachi chapter 2. To understand God's faithfulness to us, his people, through Christ Jesus. And my invitation to you as we read this is for you to, to pray in your, in your hearts and to contemplate this in your minds, understanding that all of this is a call to repentance for us, a call to recognize his role as great king, his role as our savior, and ours to use our lips in his service. Beginning at verse 7 of Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Let's pray. Father God, our, our sacrifices aren't what you desire. The honor of our hearts and the opportunity to cleanse us from our sin is what you desire for us. Lord Jesus, you desire that our lips would declare your praise, that our mouths will sing aloud of your righteousness. And so we got, God, we thank you that you are the covenant-keeping God, that you have, through your son Jesus, fulfilled and kept every single one of your promises. May we, your people, speak gospel truth, speak your word to the world around us, that they may know that you are holy and that we are your people. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord Jesus. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.